Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metza. With this week in Minneapolis and across the country, we're seeing civil unrest and hopefully the beginnings of social change. I reached out to um, a man who I've uh, yet to meet in person, but I've been following him and uh, in the work he's been doing about social change and in the community for years. Monty Butte is an associate professor of sociology at Metropolitan State University in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, he is also a writer, and the professor has uh, been prolific over the years, publishing over 80 articles in scholarly publications and the popular press. He uh, got started becoming politically active in the anti-war movement at the University of Minnesota in the late 1960s, spent some time in Berkeley in the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco. He knows a lot about what's going on. He knows about protests. He knows about social change. And uh, it uh, has been a life's work for him. So I am very happy to introduce tonight uh, Mr. Monty Butte. Monty, how are you? I'm good. It's uh, good to get acquainted and be on a Legends show. <laughs> well, I've been uh, I've been uh, hearing your name for years, Monty. And what's fun when you go back, uh, kind of the beauty of Facebook, and you can see what uh, somebody looked like fifty or forty years ago, and see what they look like today. But you had a, a, a white man's afro that was about. Uh, it looked to be about uh, three feet tall with your white rim glasses back when you were causing trouble at the U of M with the anti-war protests. And now you are a genteel uh, professor still working at the age of 75. And uh, we've had so much going on in Minneapolis in particular, but around the country with social unrest. And I thought there would be no one better, Monty, than you to, uh, to talk about this. So thanks so much for taking time tonight. I'm glad to be on and can help out. Monty, tell us a little bit about uh, your background. You came, you grew up in a Mennonite family. And then when I was reading, doing a little research uh, last night and this morning, you also spent a little time within the walls of Red Wing, uh, the uh, juvenile detention center in Red Wing, Minnesota, and then ended up uh, at the University of Minnesota. So just give us a little bit of background, uh, your beginnings. Yeah, um, yeah, I was born into a Mennonite colony, and if people don't know what Mennonites are, they're sort of the kissing cousins of the Amish. Okay. Uh, but they're too tight-ass to do much <laughs> kissing. Right. So I managed to get the hell out of there, but when I got out of there where I landed, you know that Bob Dylan song that's little known, Behind the Walls of Redway? I know it well, actually. Uh, landed there, did a couple terms there, finally got out at 18, purely by chance, because I had nothing else going on with my life, and tuition was $5 a credit hour. Wow. Uh, I stumbled into a junior college, Austin State Junior College, and it all went crazy from there. <laughs> I understand that, you know, uh, young folks these days don't know what a junior college is. I junior colleges. I went to Masabi State Junior College in my hometown of Virginia, Minnesota, that I used to refer to, Monty, as high school with ashtrays. <laughs> Perfect. 
<laughs> so uh, after, uh, after your time at, at Austin Junior College, how did you end up in the Twin Cities? Um, well, I knew that after I was paroled that it was only a matter of time before the good folks of Jackson, Minnesota would arrange for a scholarship for me to the Stillwater State Penitentiary. <laughs> so I, I got my ass out of town in a 1949 Plymouth and headed for the Twin Cities. Couldn't find work because they told me always at the prison that their their advice was always tell the employer the truth. Bullshit. Don't ever tell the employer the truth. I struggled looking for a job for a couple of months. Finally got a job with, you won't believe this, but I was in charge of an international operation for Pillsbury. <laughs> Well, the operation was I, in their basement, was in charge internationally of notepads. Okay. Every day I cranked down uh, some pieces of paper, put cardboard between every 500 sheets, and then painted the backs with glue. <laughs> I was in charge of Pillsbury's notebooks. Now, the only real benefit of this job was the paint they used got you higher than hell. <laughs> and I worked there for a while, was a hopeless drunk, and how the world has changed. I woke up one morning, 18 years old, in a, uh, on Franklin and 3rd Avenue on the stairs of uh, an apartment building. Passed out there, don't, didn't remember a thing. Somebody said, son, you probably should go down to 2218, the AA house, and get some help. And I walked in, and I said, I'm here for some help. And this is 1963. Two old codgers at the desk looked at me and laughed their ass off. They said, why don't you come back in about 30 years? <laughs> when, you, when you really have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that was sort of the attitude of AA in those days. Okay. You didn't really have a problem until you were elderly. Right, right. But um, when I was at Pillsbury, some attorney, I don't know why, but he, he said to me one day, he said, Monty, you're really not as stupid as you appear to be. He said, have you ever thought about going to college? Well, I gave that some thought, and I was getting tired of my brain being racked by glue. Called up my dad, and now while I was in prison, my family moved 90 miles away, but I found them. And I asked my dad, could I come home and earn some money? And my dad said, no way, no way, no way. Well, I promised everything he asked, and I ended up in Albert Lee, Minnesota. And there was only one job available in town. And that job was at the Land O'Lakes Turkey Factory. Okay. And my job was to take the turkeys out live out of their cages and hang them up 
by their feet going in on the conveyor belt. Ooh, that sounds brutal. It was. And, you know, uh, I'm 18. I've been locked up for two years. I'm horny as hell. (laughs) Every day at lunch, I rush up to the cafeteria and want to meet some young women. Nobody will even sit with me. Well, it's because from head to foot, I'm full of turkey (laughs) My glasses are taped together with white tape because flying wings have broken them. Right. But I stuck it out, got enough money, got a room for $7 a week, paid my tuition, and off I went to college. So... From there, I eventually stumbled up to the U, and uh, my life fell apart a little bit. And so I took a break, and purely by chance, I ended up as a daily newspaper reporter in Austin, Minnesota. Hmm. Well, I was also sort of falling in with a bad crowd at that time. And I brought the first LSD into Austin in 1967. When it was legal, though, correct? (laughs) And rented a big old house and let runaways, uh, derelicts, ex-cons, everybody stay there. But, Monty, let me just ask you, but wasn't uh, LSD still legal then, or had it just become illegal? No, it was illegal in 67. So, while I'm a reporter in the newspaper, uh, I got a bug about Vietnam, and I organized, I think, the first anti-war march in greater Minnesota in 1967. Well, this accumulation of stuff kind of hit the fan. So I got word that uh, there was going to be a bust at my house, and I got out of town just before state and local police raided the place. I got in the back. Two weeks later, I got in in a Volkswagen van driven by a meth freak and headed for the Haight-Ashbury. Let's stop right there because we're coming up to the break. I can't, okay. I can't wait to hear what happens when you end up in the hate. We've got Monty Butte, uh, a social activist and professor at Met- Metropolitan State University, on for the whole show tonight. We're going to hear a little music, and uh, we'll be back with three more segments with Professor Butte. Welcome back to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metzer. 
My guest for the whole show tonight, Professor Monty Butte, knows a little bit about anti-war protests and social change. We're ending the last, the first segment with Monty. I just gotten ready to uh, go from Minneapolis to Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco. So, Monty, tell us your first day in Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco. What was that like? Uh, it was rather mind-boggling. We're, it's 1967. I'm wandering the streets, and I'm seeing uh, people like Allen Ginsberg and his lo- lover, Peter Orlovsky. I'm seeing the Grateful Dead wandering around, the Steve Miller Band. Uh, it was just amazing. Within a month, I met Owsley, the famous acid maker. Wow. And was making regular trips for supplies to his house in Berkeley. Wow. But it was, it was quite a time. Um, but I, unfortunately had no sense of limits. You remember Maurice, the big, tall African-American flute player? Oh, yeah, 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 Maurice Jaycox, very good friend of mine from Willie and the Bees. Well, I would see him wandering on the streets. Um, We'd go and get in. I didn't know him that well, but I and other people, besides taking psychedelics, we would get on meth runs for six, seven days. Wow. And we we were pretty stretched out. But we were over and headed to Berkeley quite often. And there was, after the Paris riots that almost brought de Gaulle down, there was a huge celebration of 10,000 people in Berkeley. And the next week, the Berkeley Barb, which was the most famous of all the left-wing newspapers in America, had a front-page portrait in a circle of five famous people, well, four famous people, uh, Eldridge Cleaver, Mario Savio, etc. One of the five is an anonymous hippie using a curb on Telegraph Avenue as a pillow. (laughs) <laughs> and people were dropping popcorn in his mouth. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> now, Owsley had given me some uh, uh, patches, and he said, now, don't take more than a half of one of these at a time. Mm-hmm. It is dynamite. Well, I, fool that I was, took two. <laughs> That trip lasted for 48 hours and got me on the cover of the Berkeley Bar. Wow. But um, it was also the time that was the transition. What had been peace and love and this uh, daydream of utopia suddenly started changing into a world of drug ripoffs, murders, evil everywhere. I still remember seeing Charles Manson, not knowing who he was, and a bunch of young girls tripping up and down uh, on the hate. But it got real ugly real fast. Hmm. But it it all went to hell. Um, The 
free clinic. They took me in there, and I had taken what I thought was two tablets of mescaline. And Dr. Smith said, uh, I examined this, and it was actually a horse tranquilizer sprinkled with strychnine. And uh, I went into a psychotic journey to hell for the next couple years. Wow, incredible. In in and out of locked wards, never could quite regain my sanity during that period. So that was the end of the Haight-Ashbury days. But you probably want to get to a few more contemporary stories. Yeah, well, so you spent uh, so... How many years were you in, in Berkeley and Haight-Ashbury, Monty 67 Butte? 67 and 68. Okay, so how did you hike back to uh, the University of Minnesota just in time? Well, to- how bad off I was is San Francisco was tired of crazy, wild people on their street. They bought me a bus ticket, completely psychotic put me on a bus back to Minneapolis. I can tell you the driver thought this was the worst trip he ever had because I was on a trip. And I landed back here, slowly recovered, but they locked me away at one point at the University of Minnesota Psychiatric Ward. And I set the ward on fire. They got alarmed enough that at that point they had squad cars and they hauled me out to the lock ward at Anoka State Hospital. I bounced through these places, finally got out, sort of regained my balance. And when I was at Anoka, one of the great stories is there was a British psychiatrist, and I was starting to bug him when I, uh, that I wanted to get out. And he looked at me, and he said, Butte, look at yourself. I'd as so- You look like some sort of a Zulu. I'd as soon look like you as running around with my penis hanging out. <laughs> now, my wits were scrambled, but not gone, and I replied to him, Doctor, that might be good therapy for you. <laughs> Within two days, my brother helped me escape, and we spent the summer roaming the interior of British Columbia in a Volkswagen van and a stolen credit card. (laughs) You know, a lot of people that just might have tuned in while they're changing stations and heard some of these nefarious stories (laughs) about my guest, Bonnie Butte, might not realize that for the last uh, couple of decades, uh, well, 36 years, in fact, he's an associate professor of sociology at Metropolitan State University in St. Paul. And, Monty, you know, like I tell my uh, my nephews and my nieces, uh, I said, when you're walking through a supermarket and you see that little old guy in his slippers and he's shopping, pushing his cart, and he's got a little cap on with a little ponytail in the back. 
Don't prejudge him because there's a good chance 40 years ago he was naked, tripping on acid, grooving to the Grateful Dead at Woodstock. <laughs> We've got Monty viewed on for the whole show tonight. We've got two more segments. We're going to get into his anti-war activism at the University of Minnesota, and then uh, we're going to get his very uh, uh, enlightened views on what's going on in America now in, in uh, response uh, to the brutal murder of Minneapolis President With their fingers on their triggers Knee-deep in gore Days and nights they battled The band to to their knees They killed to earn their living And to help out the Congolese Thompson Gunner Golden the Thompson Gunner His comrades fought beside him Van Owen and the rest But of all the Thompson Gunners Roland was the best So the CIA decided They wanted Roland Son of a bitch, Van Owen Blew off Roland's head Welcome back to the third set of the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metzler. My most fabulous guest all night tonight is uh, Professor Monty Butte, who teaches at the Metropolitan State University, but uh, had quite an uh, incredible childhood and upbringing uh, until he saw the light of day with political righteousness, uh, but a bit of a rebel in his time. Bless you, Monty Butte, for that. So... You are now back from British Columbia with your brother, and uh, you're back at the University of Minnesota. So how did you become politically awakened at that time? Well, I had been since that 67 March, but I became much more active. And where it really got weird um, was 1972. Nixon had mined the Haiphong Harbor, and... The University of Minnesota had had protests, but it was never the magnitude of Madison and Berkeley and other places. Well, 1972 changed. Uh, that coincided on the West Bank. There was a massive redevelopment, what is now the Riverside Towers over there. Mm -hmm. There was a protest they had brought in George Romney, Little Mitster's daddy. He was the Secretary of Housing and Development for Nixon. He was there to dedicate Cedar Square West. Well, we 
had thousands of people in the streets. We crashed down the gates. They had to, with armed guards, push Romney into a car and fled him out of there. And the Cedar Riverside for five hours was open riot. Tear gas everywhere, students running like crazy. That night, we hit the national scene. Walter Cronkite and CBS News had footage of this. Hmm. Well, I was sort of an anonymous just a soldier in the crowd. But what I had a skill at was it was as if I had trained my whole life. I had this huge afro, which was natural, and which to this day I show to my African-American students, and they're envious that they can't <laughs> grow one like that. But I had wire-wearing glasses, and I had a gift for gab. And I got a megaphone, and I became sort of an ad hoc field commander. The next day, this all moved to the East Bank, and somebody leaked to me that the Minneapolis Tactical Squad was hidden away in Kohler's Garage in Dinkytown. Well, I figured we better bring them out. So we marched over to Dinkytown and began trashing the local ROTC recruiting office, breaking the windows, and nothing yet. Well, then I and Dean Zimmerman and some other people directed half the crowd down to the ROTC armory. There were iron fences around that embedded in two feet of steel. People literally ripped those out, and that set it off. Here comes the Minneapolis Police Department under the direction of Mayor Charles Stenvig, a right-wing thug, and they began beating the out of people. From there, the rest of the day, we moved people around, and it was sort of like some of the stuff you're seeing on the streets today. They'd come to get us, and we'd divert half the people off to another site, and it just kept going. By late afternoon, they had already brought in all the officers from the seven counties, and were beginning to lose control. And they finally lost it. And they took up helicopters and began tear-gassing all of the university and all of Dinkytown with tear-gas canisters. They were hitting daycare centers. They were hitting businesses. It was just insane. Well, we continued to move about. And the next thing I know, they call in the National Guard, 800 troops. We kept going. 
we finally settled down, but on Washington Avenue, we erected gigantic barricades and fires. And we kept those going for two and a half days. They finally begged us, they brought in Senator June McCarthy to beg us to give up the streets. It finally came to a head, and they were massed to clear the streets. And a wise police lieutenant threw up his hands, and he said, this is not worth getting anyone killed over. And he withdrew the troops. Hmm. It was probably the smartest move he made, because it sort of took the air out of the balloon. By not confronting us, ironically, we sort of dissipated, and we gave up the barricades over the next couple of days and opened the streets again. But that's really how I got my start. A couple of days after this ends, people are calling me that there are federal agents going to addresses where I had previously lived hunting for me. They initially arrested me and were considering inciting to riot charges. They lowered those. And an anti-war judge heard my case and gave me a symbolic one day in jail Hmm. and let it go. So that's how I got my start. And from there, it was most people, you know, the 60s ended in 1973, really. And most people went on with their lives. But some of us dedicated our life to social change and social activism. And all through the 70s, I tried to keep that spark alive. And I was involved with the Tenants Union, MPERG, one organization after another to keep the spirit of making meaningful structural change alive. So there were a number of organizations, but it was from then on I had found my life calling. And... I ran something called the Jobs Now Coalition. It was a coalition of 40 labor, religious, and uh, human service organizations. And over over five years, we gained $165 million for a jobs program in five years. Years. Fantastic. So, 1987, I said, our time is over. That great recession was over. It's time to move on. People didn't want to. So, I walked off. And the Tribune wrote a profile of me, big picture. And about two weeks later, it dawned on me. That story was everything that at 22 I wished would be in my obituary when I die. Hmm. 
And it became a symbolic transition. I was 42. I didn't have any, I had never finished college. And I decided I was going to become a college professor. And my life has never been anything but catch me if you can. Hmm. I ended up teaching for seven years at Metro State as a professor before they caught me and realized I didn't have a B.A. You're like one of those guys that uh, cruise through hospitals pretending they're doctors and get away with it for however long they can doing whatever they're doing. Um <laughs> But that's the academic version of that, right, Tavani? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you're hanging out in the teacher's lounge, and when I was reading some of your stuff, you went from smoking camel straights to smoking a pipe, so that was part of your uh, part of your disguise, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. But I managed to pull it off, and every attempt they made to get rid of me failed. Uh, they fired me at one point. And um, hundreds of students demanded a meeting with the president of the, the uh, university, and they were wise enough to bring along a Minneapolis Star Tribune reporter. Hmm. And one of the students said to the president, you know, I'm all, I'm all for credentials and that stuff but I don't want it to get in the way of my education. Hmm. We've got uh, Monty Butte on. Uh, he's a professor at Metropolitan State uh, University in St. Paul. Uh, just This has been such a fascinating conversation. This is exactly, Monty, what I expected to hear when I knew I would finally track you down. We're going to have him on for one more segment. We're going to have him back again. Uh, I think we're just getting a glimpse of Monty's story. In the last segment, I want to ask Monty's views on what's exactly going on now with the civil unrest in response to the tragic murder of George Floyd. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the last set on the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metzl. My guest, my most fascinating guest for the whole show tonight is uh, uh, Mr. Monty Butte, who is, uh, has quite a backstory and has been teaching at Metropolitan State University for the last 36 years. Now, Monty, uh, I got to have you on again because, I, I, you know, you're 75 years old. We just got a small glimpse of your history and your story. Uh, but let's start out with you've been uh, you've also been struggling with uh, cancer for many years. Yeah, I was diagnosed at 65 with a very rare form of cancer, and uh, only five or six hundred cases have ever appeared. And the medium length of survival from diagnosis was 14 months. That's ten and a half years ago. Hmm. So nothing slows me down. I just charged ahead. Well, you had, when I was reading uh, 
glancing through the articles you sent me for a little background, uh, but you said your motto is the William Faulkner motto when he received a Nobel Prize that uh, when Faulkner said, I would not only endure, but I would prevail. And that seems to be a, a strong part of your ethos. It is. I'm still going. And in my own way, you know, I'm pretty crippled up and stuff, but I'm doing what I can to stay on top. I have uh, a Facebook page that has 1,700 people on it, and at least 500 of them are former students going back 45 years. It's incredible. And what a joy that is now to be introduced to their grandkids of some of them. But what's going on in the last seven or eight, nine days is I lived through the 60s. I was in the Fillmore District rioting the night in San Francisco on the night Martin Luther King was killed. You know, since Trump has been in office, there's been a lot of loose talk about dictatorships and authoritarianism, and there's little glimmers. In the last three or four days, I realized we are watching exactly how Hitler took over in 1933. Hmm. This... This country has not had a threat like this since the Civil War. We need to put this in context and the magnitude of what is going on. Between the economic collapse, COVID-19, and now the voices of the unheard. And Martin Luther King said, riots are the voice of the unheard. And we're finally starting to be forced to listen. But Trump's move in the past few days to militarize this, to bring out federal troops, he has gone finally over the deep edge. He is clearing the streets in Washington, D.C., and marching to that church with the Attorney General the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Secretary of Defense. This is a militarized move, and I've been a skeptic of thinking he was going to go over the deep edge. He has gone over the deep edge. We need to prepare for massive resistance in this country. You realize it took... Hitler just six months to turn one of the finest democracies in Europe, the Weimar Republic, into Nazi Germany in just six months with stormtroopers and the military. Our cities are crawling with white supremacists, and now it's come out that these white supremacists have disguised themselves as the left-wing Antifa 
um, and they have been operating behind the scenes. They're driving around in cars without plates. They're stealing cars. They're being found with Molotov cocktails. People are trying, the Boogaloo Boys are trying to start a race war in America. So I think people really better wake up. This is this is, as Malcolm X said, the chickens coming home to roost. And if Trump were elected to a second term, we will no longer be a democracy. In fact, we may not be a democracy by November 3rd. Wow, those are chilling words, uh, Monty Butte. And uh, everything you just said and then coupled it uh, couple it with the bad guys now have the technology in their pocket on a cell phone that uh, has the same power that put a man on the moon in 1968 and all of those nefarious networking capabilities. I wish, uh, I really appreciate your insight and your honesty, Monty. Uh, I think what I do in my work uh, as a musician uh, kind of resonates with your Faulkner quote is, I do find beauty in the struggle, and we are in the middle of a major struggle, probably one of the biggest struggles that uh, this, this country has seen in, in over 200 years. Monty Butte, uh, on the upside, uh, it's really been a pleasure to get to know you. I look forward to meeting you in person and uh, – Let's uh, let's have you on the show every now and then to uh, chime in with your with your wealth of experience and your point of view. Well, I'm I appreciate that you found me in the graveyard with one <laughs> foot going down. It's always nice to re- be remembered. All right, Monty. It, it's been a great joy. I loved it. Yeah, me too, Monty. Well, you take care, and uh, I will stay in touch. Okay. Bye bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Wall of Power. Radio Hour. The show is produced by Paul Metza, engineered by Pat Lilia, and recorded in the basement of AM 950 Studios in Eden Prairie, which is neither Eden nor a prairie. If you would like to support the work that I'm doing on uh, my radio show, my TV show, and also my music, because there's no gigs right now, I do have a Venmo account. It's just Venmo at Paul-Metza. More info on all of that and what I'm up to at PaulMetza.com. I want to tell everybody out there in uh, Radio Land, stay strong and positive. We're going through some dark times, but we're going to get through it. And like my dad used to tell me, remember to be kind and make someone happy.